Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we'll discuss a different safeguarding topic with a range of expert speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our next episode of the Safeguarding Podcast. I'm Vicky Chafe, Head of Community and Partnership Relations at the Safeguarding Company, and I am delighted to be your host today. This is a very special episode, and it is one that is very close to my heart, and it's on the topic of consent. I am joined by the wonderful Dr. Emily Setti. Some of you might be wondering where you've heard her before. Well, I was lucky enough to have Emily and Nicole on a webinar not so long ago, um, talking around the consent project that you've been working on. If anybody missed it, don't worry, we'll put the link in the show notes afterwards, and you'll be able to go back and and watch it. Emily, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks for having me. Really pleased to be here as well. So um, I am Emily Setti, as you say. I'm a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Surrey, and I conduct research with young people, predominantly adolescents, young adults, about their experiences of sex and relationships, both online and offline, and all the kind of merging of the two domains. And um, And yeah, a big sort of interest of mine is around the issue of sexual consent and how young people kind of negotiate that with each other and how they make sense of that um, within their peer cultures, but also um, kind of interpersonally and on a kind of individual subjective level um, as well and, and, and how they navigate that as they go through their processes of developing and growing up and all of that complicated stuff that we can all remember probably from being a teenager I um, like kind of sitting down with them and talking to them about um, all that kind of stuff and the challenges they face and what they think about what's going on in the world and in their lives. Yeah, and there's so much more pressure on our young people today than there ever was when when we were younger with the pressures of social media and the fact that there's more technology and mobile phones weren't really a, a massive part of our life when we were younger. So all of those emotions that we were feeling as we were growing up, they're just completely exacerbated by the situation that our young people are in right now. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, I do quite a bit of research on young people's kind of perspectives on being online and, and online harms and what that means to them and, and how it affects them. And and it's interesting because, you know, for ages, I was very much of the view of, well, you know, the, the internet, like the online world is, is a mirror to society in a way. And, you know, all this stuff was always a problem. And now it's just playing out online. And, and we have to kind of get at whatever the underlying issue is, you know, bullying offline, online, whatever it might be. It's just a new manifestation of that. And I do somewhat believe that to be kind of true. Um, but on the other hand, I am kind of more and more thinking about the way in which it's exaggerated and exacerbated online. And not that, say, young people are like terribly managing all of this stuff, but actually like the very design of some of these spaces um, capitalise on those feelings and experiences within adolescence and those peer group dynamics. You know, it's really kind of bedded into the very kind of social media logic and, and all of that. And a lot of money is being made potentially through some of these anxieties and crises that that teenagers have as they grow up and 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 actually helping young people kind of navigate some of those spaces because what i found is a lot of 
kind of digital safety stuff is all about like you need to get off your phone you're addicted to your phone and and all of this whereas actually we need to say well how are some of these spaces designed to make you feel this way and 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 where do the responsibilities really lie with some of that absolutely and in fact for anybody who watches uh, our safeguarding news the upcoming episodes all around that and we're talking about the the Dove's campaign for what real beauty is and how it affects children with their um, with self harm and with eating disorders and things like that. But yeah, so that's mm. that's a whole whole other episode yeah. on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll be listening to that. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> um, Emily, can you tell us about your recent studies in consent education? Yeah, sure. So the most recent study. Um, that I've spoken about a lot. So I'm sure some of your listeners will be like, yes, I've heard about this. But for those of you who have not, um, yeah, last year, um, I partnered with Life Lessons, um, the, the kind of um, relationships and sex ed organisation. And, um, and we went into a few schools, an elite independent boys school, um, a kind of inner city, all boys academy school quite high kind of deprivation um, in that school so kind of opposite ends of the scale and then a mixed academy school in sort of just like a middle classy kind of sort of area for want of better way of putting it and um, we went in and we spoke to boys about what they're being taught about consent how they feel about that education um, how they feel about their relationships with girls, with each other as boys, their kind of wider peer cultures and and how that education that they're getting is connecting or not with the realities they face, how they feel about um, sex and relationships at the current time and what they kind of struggle with and, and, and what they're taking from that education and whether or not it's really making a difference to their feelings and their behaviours or whatever. And um, we observed some of the lessons um, that they've were getting on consent and we spoke to their teachers about you know what their teachers are trying to achieve and what that project enabled us to do was really kind of piece together all the gaps to be like okay this is what the boys say this is what they're being taught this is what the teachers kind of think they're doing or are aiming to do and like what's the outcome of all of that like where are we left at the moment with that and and how can we start to make sense of if, like for a long time haven't we known that that you get this relationships and sex ed and it, it gets delivered and it doesn't really have the impact and and kids are saying oh it's kind of not really helpful it's not relevant and I'm not really getting taught about the stuff I need to know and, and we keep getting these surveys don't we and I think sexual consent as a topic is is like such a vital one at the moment isn't it everyone, like we've been talking about it for quite some time and you've had everyone's invited and all this issue of sexual harm in schools and you know this bigger sort of societal awareness of of these problems starting I guess with like the me too movement and all of that and it's the ground has been building for such a long time and I think the the place of a teenage boy within all of that you know I, I don't want to ever be sort of apologetic for sexual assault or whatever. I'd, I'd never do that. But but I do think teenage boys occupy quite a fraught space in the kind of social context at the moment. So, yeah, we really wanted to bring them into the conversation and give them a bit of a voice to articulate what it's like um, to hear these messages and, and engage with this education and, and how they feel about themselves and, and their relationships based on all that. Wonderful. Um what impact do you think that the self-described social media misogynists are having on our children and young people? Yeah, so this is something that kind of cropped up in in that research project. Um, this idea of like what what they're engaging with online and um, 
and there was all this talk about oh you know um girls lie about being assaulted and and, and boys and girls don't really know how to talk to each other and you know and boys need to be like strong and dominant and and they they you know and they need to like know how to get consent and do it in like a seductive smooth way and all of these sort of narratives were coming out and I don't think those narratives are new particularly like that that's always been there that idea of masculinity and femininity and stuff but what was interesting was like the way in which some of what's being said and done on social media was you know when we said to the boys oh like why do you think this stuff and they'd be like oh well you know you you see this stuff online and like there are these stories of of men who have, have had women like lie about them and their whole lives have been ruined and I was like well okay like who are you following like where are you kind of getting that those stories from and that's where you know it is it's like where whatever we want to call them misogyny I'm currently bidding for some funding around what's going on online and we've been grappling around how do you actually describe these people you know who are they like are they misogynistic are they this are they that you know is it misinformation is it is it just an opinion that they're putting out there that's we might not like it but you know it's an opinion so fair enough like how do we kind of conceptualize this stuff and and you know but if we kind of put aside that more sort of academic interest in figuring out what all this means there is definitely you know boys finding these narratives kind of attractive and enticing because they are a way of making sense of some of the feelings that they've got. So in a way, it looks really new, but it's not new because it's it's tapping into anxieties and feelings and perspectives on masculinity that have always been floating around. But it's like being packaged up in this particular way that that is quite attractive for some boys. You know, if they're not if they're not feeling like they can get things off their chest, if 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 you know a lot of sort of educational narratives set things up in a particular way that don't really resonate with them. Well, it goes back to what I was saying before about these sort of social media logics and and the way in which these people online can construct their narrative with all the kind of visual effects and and all the way in which likes and shares and follows and all that stuff is is put out there. Um, that can be a lot more convincing than you know, bless, but like a well-meaning teacher standing up talking about consent and masculinity and stuff it's it's not really it's, it's, it's you can't compete really with, with that power um and and but I mean some boys are very critical of it and they're very aware of of all of those dimensions to it but you know um I, I think it's not surprising really absolutely and um, we were having a conversation about this um a, a week or so ago and we were talking about how some people feel a certain type of way about the way that these people are coming across online so they're they're immediately quite defensive so whenever anybody comes to talk to you about said subject um you almost immediately go well just don't listen to them they're ridiculous and then you fall Mm. into the trap of of that whole big red button don't push where you're saying to them, no, it's wrong. Just, just don't listen to it without really getting into that talking and having that conversation about why he's, why these people are doing what they're doing or why they're talking about what they're talking about. Um, and I, th- and I think that it's, it's really trying sparking those challenging conversations as well. Definitely. And you know, I think there's a few things going on with that very issue. Um, I was in a school the other day, actually, where um, one of the teachers was saying to me, oh, you know, our boys um, or most boys or whatever here don't 
you know the Andrew Tates and all that they don't you know that they're not being affected negatively by by those kind of social media influences so so that's all good and I was like oh you know okay that's cool what 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 do you think is like the difference with your boys you know what do they have you know that other boys don't like what what is it we need to engender and and they the teacher was like what did she say she said oh well um you know the the boys know that if they express those kind of sentiments that that like we'll tell them off it's wrong they're not allowed to say those things and I was like ah so so it's not that the boys aren't influenced by Andrew Tay it's that they won't say anything in front of you because you shut them down and I think these well-meaning attempts to go you know it's a zero tolerance thing I've got a bit of a problem with zero tolerance for various reasons and you know one of it is that you do just shut down it's not you don't change any hearts and minds with that you just push it underground and I think that's a problem because you're not getting at the underlying issue. But also what you're doing is you're feeding into the very narrative that these influencers, these guys are putting out there that this stuff can't be said. We live in a time of cancel culture. These feminazis don't care about how you feel and what you really think. So not only are we missing an opportunity to break stuff down and have better conversations with boys, we're also feeding into the enemy, if that's what we want to call them. We're we're doing exactly what they say we, we're going to do. And then, so we're, we're entrenching those divisions more and more. And I think, I mean, something I got a bit after the consent research I, I almost got to the point where I thought it would actually be better not to intervene at all than to intervene badly because you can yeah. do more harm than good and I said all that a bit sort of firmly when I first was sharing that research project and and there was a bit of people being like to me well you know we can't just leave these kids with nothing and, and something's better than nothing and I was like yeah okay I need to like tone this down a bit and be a bit more constructive but but I think the fundamental point is still there that actually we do need to look at the unintended consequences of how we might intervene and actually we might feel better because we've shown zero tolerance to misogyny and we've made our point and I think particularly in school environments where where it is about behavior management it's that sort of authoritative structure isn't it and and I completely understand with schools having to deal with a million one things and so just shutting things down cutting it off right we can all move on and get back to what we're meant to be doing and I can completely see the attractiveness of that but but it's about okay what what do some of these statements that boys might make almost like where are they a bit of a teachable moment for all of us right to do something a bit different and also just one more thing I'd add on that is that my suspicion and I have had boys sort of confirm this with me sometimes is that they don't even really believe a lot of what Andrew Tate says and guys like him, particularly the more obvious misogynistic stuff. I don't know, women deserve yeah. to be in the kitchen, blah, 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 all this. But they say it because they're teenage boys and they like winding people up and they think it's funny. And they don't really think that women should be in the kitchen. They just know, oh, it's banter, you know, let's have a bit of a wind up here. And the more we tell them off, the more hilarious they think it is. I've had schools say to me, oh, can you come and do an assembly about Andrew Tate? And I say, no, because the last thing we need is some person standing up there at the front of an assembly telling these kids how awful it is that's the one thing guaranteed to make it more funny and attractive and enticing to them so I think we do have to be careful how we engage right and we have to be a bit reflective on that as well as actually looking well what why what what's the underlying cause like what's been going on for all this time why are boys finding themselves in a position 
how have we almost failed them to get to the point where these people are gaining so much traction? I think really what I'm saying is there's a lot of questions we have to ask ourselves as adults before we even go and talking to boys. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything that schools can do? And I know that we've, we've just been talking about it, but is there, is there anything really constructive that schools can do to push back against these influences? Like we've said, it's it's having those challenging conversations, isn't it? And it's about not shutting it down and having those, letting those conversations come out. Um, is, is there anything that would really support those kind of conversations? Yeah, because I do, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for schools, like, you know, critical friend type of thing of schools. Like, I, I have such a lot of sympathy for them. And I don't think that like the way in which RSE is currently conceived and like the lack of funding and, and, and leadership and structure to it, even with all these government guidance, I think schools are really being left, as we've seen with all the recent you know dramas around RSE I think they've really been left to kind of join the dots around how they're actually meant to challenge all these societal problems I mean you look at the government guidance it's all you've got to deal with inequality and misogyny and all this stuff and you've got to achieve all these learning objectives and you're thinking my god you know how do you do that you haven't got any training no funding it's it's completely baffles me and so and I also just think whether or not any of this is really going to be solved within like an educational yeah. institutional environment. I, I think there are so many barriers to actually resolving it. However, all that being said, there are potentially things um, that schools can do it just sort of naturally. I don't think you need a lesson on Andrew Tate or whoever. I, I think that isn't needed specifically. And I think doing that because yeah, today it's Andrew Tate. He'll, go into the background next week or yeah. someone else you know what I mean it's all it's all constantly moving I think to get to the underlying issue does not require focus on on the individuals per se I think something I'm particularly interested in is really making room for what the difference is between the individual and the wider cultures and social contexts that they inhabit you know and I think that's where some of these ideas about toxic masculinity and boys and stuff I I don't know how helpful it is because, yeah, we we know that on a level, masculinity can confer some power, particularly against girls and, and, and stuff. And there can be those dynamics that play out. But but actually, when you sit down and you talk to individual boys, they don't actually feel any of that power because they're trying to ne negotiate those masculinity cultures and are feeling as sort of unsure and insecure about themselves and then they're being told, well, you, you're the ones with all the power and the privilege. And they're like, what? And that's where you get this kind of distinction between their own conflict, their own internal conflict and, and what they see kind of going on around them. I mean, I've spoken to boys like that consent project about, yeah, you know, in the peer group, girls become almost like the symbol for quite a lot of misogynistic masculinity play. But then when you sit and you talk to them one-to-one, -one, they're like, well, you just want a girlfriend. You just want like a nice relationship. So there's this real disjuncture between individuals and the cultures that they're in and I think the more we can help boys to and girls and all young people to become aware of those distinctions and and develop that self-awareness and that emotional literacy to understand why they might be feeling these conflicts and why and, and when that then gets packaged up as hostility rather than shutting it down and saying that's a really hostile thing to say we can start to unpack it like the stuff that came out of the research in terms of false accusations was really interesting because a lot of the groups of boys that we spoke to 
brought up this issue of false accusations and yeah they've seen all these stories online about it and in the lessons what you tend to find is that those boys will just be told no no false accusations are really rare whatever that's a sexist thing to say girls aren't making this stuff up you know blah blah, blah. and then the boys are like okay fine and then that's the end of the conversation i said to the boys oh like what do you mean by false accusation like what what do you mean what happens with a false accusation and it was interesting because some of them were like, oh, like girls lie, right? They regret it and then they make something up. I don't know, their parents find out. Okay, fine. A full sexation as such. But then actually when we started having the conversation, they, they started talking about, oh, but you know, sometimes like the girl isn't lying. Like she genuinely feels violated and maybe she thought that she made it clear she wasn't happy, but like you didn't pick up on it. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's not a full sexation then, is it? It's, it's like what you're actually expressing there is that you feel quite uncertain about like how do people communicate what what are these non-verbal cues that people give off about how they feel and am i picking up on that and, and do i know what i'm doing because these kids are like 13 yeah. 14 15 they're not 25 year old guys saying oh i don't really understand no they're teenage boys that have barely even had a proper conversation with a girl so there is some credibility to their confusion but they're then going online and they're hearing all this stuff about false accusations. And then that insecurity that they feel comes out as hostility to girls. They're saying, oh, girls are the problem. And they're getting angry and it looks misogynistic. But if we can break that down and actually start saying, no, come on, what sits underneath that? Then we can find it's not actually sexism and misogyny. It's not these boys being evil. It's this almost messed up expression of something deeper but if your teacher just stands up and goes no no false sexations are super rare it's an irrelevant thing to be concerned about like that boy's just thinking oh hang on that's not helped me at all all i now feel is not heard and then when that social media guy goes do you know yeah. what i hear you yeah these girls do say this stuff all this stuff does happen well who are you going to want to go and talk to who are you going to feel a bigger bond with probably not your teacher or whoever it is that's just told you you're wrong and so i think it, that's what I'm talking about. We don't actually need to talk about Andrew Tate. We need to talk about, well, what are the feelings that are going on here? And when it comes to the sort of jokey stuff, because a lot of boys will counter, yeah, 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 I know it's rubbish, it's just funny. Um, I think that puts teachers and adults in a real difficult position because what you want to say is, yeah, okay, but it's not really funny though, is it? And then boys are like, oh, well, you know, you're just shutting me down and, and all of this. And I think that can become really challenging. I think that's, again, where conversations need to be had about what counts as a joke, what counts as fun, what is the masculine sort of game of it all in the peer group? And how's that then making you feel to for that to be a joke? And I think also then we can start tapping into what is defined as normal masculinity and aspirational masculinity because something that i've done with boys is said to them okay get all your concerns understand everything that you're feeling but does any of this solve your problem and that's where you can start talking maybe directly about andrew tate okay fine he's giving you a version of masculinity that's apparently the solution to all your feelings really though where, where's your private jet where, where's all the cigars where's the like the the, the top kickboxing thing I don't see it. Do you see it? Is it attainable? No. And and when you can start to break that down, and it's the same with the jokes. All right, then it's hilarious. Okay, I get all that. But what's the cost of that even to you? What's the pressures of having to perform in that masculine environment where it's all jokes, it's all misogyny, it's all like that? Does that how does that really actually feel? Like you know, playing that game. 
And I think the more we can make space for that and show sympathy for that and help young people of all genders develop a literacy around some of that stuff, the better. But it does require us kind of empathising a bit rather than seeing these boys as just, you know, terrible for even finding this all attractive and wanting to do it. Absolutely. And I think that safeguarding culture and context play a huge role in this you have to look at what kind of relationships these boys have been seeing so do they come from an area where maybe there is a lot of domestic violence or do they come and and those are the only relationships that they've seen so they're the only ones that they understand that plays a huge part in, as you were saying, their own emotional literacy, because they don't know what a real relationship should look like or how to communicate mm-hmm. properly. Or, you know, it's that whole, I'm angry. This is how I, this is how I've seen that this is how we communicate. And I think that that plays a huge part. So when you are going into these conversations, you have to be really clear about who your audience is. Mm, definitely and I think something um, that I kind of did on another project was this idea of like the ecosystem of how we learn about like sex and relationships and our own sort of identity within that because we often go top down don't we we go or oh, Andrew takes impact in these kids pornography is impacting these kids or whatever it is rather than actually everybody learns about sex and relationships from a variety of influences family schools social media media of all kinds you know not just pornography but all depictions of of sex and relationships I don't think there are many great depictions realistic depictions of sex and relationships in a lot of media like you know pornography gets all the bad rap or whatever but but it's everywhere isn't it and I think actually what you need to do exactly as sort of you imply is start with the individual start with your audience right well what's been your experience so far in terms of how you formulated your ideas about sex and relationships and let's start actually breaking some of that down and and piecing that together and not actually like ordering that in terms of what's good what's bad but actually seeing what are the the risks and opportunities in all these different spaces in in terms of how we learn about what's normal um i did a project um about like how lockdown affected teenagers relationships and something that came out of that was this idea of like the intensification of the influence of your family on your understanding of relationships because these kids were like the only relationship you saw was your mum and dad and like your siblings or whoever it is you were living with depending on your your circumstances you weren't getting that like vicarious learning outside of the home and all of this. And almost what they wanted was like an opportunity to like reset some mm-hmm. of that and be like, right, can we reacquaint with like all these other spaces of learning? Because kids don't, something I've picked up on from that project was kids don't want to be told this is what a real relationship looks like. And like, this is what you should be aiming for. Like, this is how you'll feel at 25 or 30 or whatever. What they want is to go on their own journey in terms of figuring out what is real and meaningful and positive for them. But they want support on that journey. They don't want to be told this is the destination, basically. They want to be taught, okay, right. Yeah, we don't know what 25-year-old you're going to be. We don't know what 30-year-old you're going to be. But let's like help you on that journey. And when you see certain things going on around you or when you have certain feelings in a given situation, well, like maybe this is some of the stuff you want to be aware of or this is what you want to reflect on. Something that I did 
with boys around um you know this idea of like oh girls and consent like they just they don't communicate properly and they don't tell us what they really want and blah 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 and I said yeah maybe they don't actually but what I've been hearing from you is that you feel super insecure and confused and anxious and I said maybe so do the girls so maybe the reason why girls sometimes struggle to say what they really feel and communicate is because they're actually feeling exactly the same way as you so like your feelings like use that to to take the perspective of the person you're with. So it's things like that. I'm not telling the boys, you must do this. And this is what constitutes a good way to engage in that situation. I was like, yeah, actually, all of this uncertainty and and, and anxiety exists, right? But like, how can we use that to engage better with each other as we're trying to figure all this stuff out as like a 15, 16 year old, right? Because it is a nightmare. It's, it's really tough. It's difficult when you're an adult, right? And that's what I say to them. I'm like, there is no adult that's got this sorted, by the way. <laughs> and this is what I think is some of the problems, right? We've all, we're all dealing with this ourselves, right? Like, and, and that's what sex is a misogyny. I mean, you know, this exists. This is not new in, you know, and, 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 and that's what I think some schools have to be aware of, right? Like, you're not the, like, objective, valueless people solving the world's problems. You're as embedded in all of this as the kids mm-hmm. are. And, and it really is sort of looking in the mirror a bit with some of that before you even start. Because if one thing kids can pick up on, it's hypocrisy, yeah. you know. And uniform policy. I mean, if I have one more conversation with kids about uniform policy, I swear it's coming up in every single group conversation that I do is uniform policy. They say, we are told... Um, sexual harmful sexual behavior all of that we get all the lessons on how bad it is everything's got to be about consent girls are victim blaming it's all wrong girls should not be being harassed blah 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 and then you're told can you pull your skirt down it's distracting the boys and the, and they're like okay i thought we just had this whole lesson about how we're not doing the body shame and victim blaming type of stuff and the enforcement i don't have a problem with uniform policy i don't i'm not one of those that thinks oh you know it should be a free-for-all but I don't think it should be enforced through sexist language yeah. like that. And, you know, and, and girls are constantly saying that is what we are being told. Our skirts are too short. It's distracting for the boys. It's, it's you know, we're showing a lack of respect for ourselves. And so all the, those lessons on harmful sexual behaviour goes right, right over there because they don't they don't buy it from the people that are telling it to them. Absolutely. So when the, when you're having those meaningful conversations, always in the back of their head, they're thinking, well, you're just telling me one thing and doing something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and as we've seen, isn't there, like in recent weeks, there's obviously a lot of disagreements about what schools should be saying and doing um, around all of these topics, right? Whether they should even be saying or doing anything seems to be open to debate at the moment. And I think... I think it's unsurprising that given that the adults in the room, as it were, in society, cannot take a kind of perspective on this, that that we can achieve some kind of consensus on. I mean, we are still having debates around whether kids should even have sex education in schools. I mean, we are in 2023 and we are still having that conversation. And I think until we can start resolving some of that, I don't think we can even really get to how can we deliver consent education effectively or how can we teach about Andrew Tate how can we teach about porn how can we deal with all of these problems when we still don't even agree as to whether we should be teaching about it at all and you know and, and when there's then a backlash and all of this because um kids are some kids are coming out and they're saying oh this is all just being done as like virtue signaling and like you know it's all just like a 
you know, a politically correct thing. And I'm like, well, where are you picking that up from? Where, why do you think you're only being taught about consent because the teachers know they've got to tick that box? Where, where's that come from? And so there's all these wider societal kind of debates that are going on that I don't think are helping the credibility then of the teachers that are trying to do stuff. It's, it's not, there needs to be some better leadership around this, right? Absolutely. And as we were saying before, there has to be more support there. Mm. There just has to be because teachers are expected to do far more than they were ever trained to do. Mm-hmm. And and having these kind of conversations, it's frightening for somebody who, who hasn't had the training or the support to be able to have them. Definitely. And I think that's an interesting thing on the safeguarding front, because like, you know, if you do a lesson and something gets said and you actually think, hang on a minute, that's a pretty harmful attitude. What's the balance between making space for breaking that down versus shutting it down? Because if you don't, if you don't get to an outcome in that lesson and you might only have half an hour at the beginning of the day to deal with all of this and potentially people walk out of that room and something gets perpetuated, it's, it's it's really difficult actually to think well do you know what all I can do is just shut it down because I can't risk having these kids walking out of that room thinking that they can act upon that and and, and, you know that that's been tolerated and you know I want to create an environment where anybody who feels victimized knows that I don't agree with that and they can come to me and report stuff um And so I think that's something that like teachers grapple with. Right. I think sometimes that can backfire because um, kids don't like to get each other into trouble. Mm -hmm. So zero tolerance can actually prevent kids from reporting stuff because particularly girls, they don't want to get boys into trouble. And there's all kinds of that sort of anti snitch culture within the peer group. So. I don't know really how to resolve that without making more time available and better training and and all of that. Um, And taking opportunities you know, you probably don't need a great deal of time, but you do need an effective use of that time. Yeah. And that's where the kind of training comes in, right? And the confidence to be able to do that. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. My goodness, Emily, it's always so wonderful to have these <laughs> conversations with you and we could just go on and on and on and on. Yes. Um, if anybody needs, um, wants to reach out or, or speak to you or, um, is there is there a way that they can do that or if they want to find out any more yeah for sure so um you know uh you said about the show notes earlier didn't you so obviously you feel free to like um you can share my like Surrey University page where you get like the kind of um information about the research that I do and, and stuff that I've written and everything um Twitter is the main like social media that I use for um this kind of thing. Everything for me is just Emily Setti because nobody has my name. So I get to have <laughs> You're all very the fortunate. <laughs> exactly. I have all the like straightforward handles or whatever because <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's not many of us out there. Um so yeah, get into contact with me like my email address and or message me on Twitter or whatever and I always reply to people there. I love hearing from people. So yeah, go for it. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you, everybody, for listening to us. If you want to carry on the conversation, please join us on the Safeguarding community and share your thoughts there. Again, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. And until next time, everybody, keep yourself safe. Goodbye. Thank you. My pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Safeguarding podcast. For resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions, please visit thesafeguardingcompany.com. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and feel free to rate us using whichever podcast provider you use.